So this reading is from Barbara Ehrenreich from her book 2014, Living with a Wild God. Uh, Barbara Ehrenreich was designated the humanist of the year by the American Humanist Association in 1998. She was trained in the sciences. She earned a PhD in cellular biology from Rockefeller University. She is the author of many non-scientific books, however, including some you may be familiar with, Fear of Falling, Nickeled and Dimed, and as I say, in 2014, one of her later books was Living with a Wild God. And in this particular book, she kind of changes some of what she'd previously written about humanism and science and spirituality. Her views had shifted a bit at that point in time. And Barbara Ehrenreich died last year at the age of 81. My father, she wrote, harbored an undying antagonism to religion. He bought himself a complete set of the works of Robert Ingersoll and sometimes bored us by reading aloud from these tomes on Sunday mornings. What he could not have guessed, and I only dimly understood at first, was that his insistence on utter rationality could cut the other way and eventually lead to doubts about the entire system that my parents held up as their reality. So I did not come to atheism the hard way by risking the blows of nuns and irate parents. I was born to atheism. I was raised in it by people who had derived their own atheism from a proud tradition of working class rejection of authority in all of its forms, whether vested in bosses or priests, angels or demons. But then at some point in the 80s, I published an essay-length history of American atheism that unearthed the stream of working-class atheism from which I was descended. I won awards and recognition from organizations of free thinkers and humanists. But eventually, I was no longer the kind of scornful, dogmatic atheist that my parents had been. I read the book of Matthew in the New Testament in my 40s. And I was startled by the mad generosity that Jesus recommends. But then, as the Bible drones on, Jesus fades away to be replaced by the risen Christ, holding out the promise of immortal life. And at this point, the message takes on a nasty, selfish edge. To propagandists for the one true God, the rise of monotheism represents an unquestionable advance in human civilization. But it can also be seen as a process of deicide, a relentless culling away of spirits and gods until almost no one is left. And thus did monotheism pave the way for Descartes and the dead world of Newtonian physics. But you know, the natural world has gotten a lot livelier than it was when I first came on the scene as a young student of science. The physical world is no longer dead or passively obedient to certain laws. To quote the polymath and determinedly rationalistic Howard Bloom, quote, we have vastly underrated the cosmos that gave us birth. We have understated her achievements, her capabilities, her creativity. We have set aside will, 
purpose, persistence in this magical enclosure and have claimed that these do not belong to nature, that they belong solely to human beings. So we have, in other words, made ourselves far lonelier than we have any reason to be. My own adolescent solipsism is incidental compared to the collective solipsism of our species that has embraced in the name of modernity and rationality a world in which there exists no consciousness, no agency other than our own. Thus endeth the reading from Barbara Ehrenreich. Michael Schuler is no stranger to our congregation. He's spoken here many times. But let me just introduce these bits of biography from Michael's life. Michael is no stranger to prairies. I share this native familiarity with prairie lands having attended college in the prairie town of Galesburg, Illinois, just a hundred and hundred miles south and west of where Michael lived when he grew up in the prairie town of Dixon, Illinois, the home of President Ronald Reagan. But Michael lived on a farm. He worked in those growing up years, removing fences, tearing down dilapidated sheds and chicken coops, raising hogs, planting pine seedlings. He fed a barnyard full of feral cats. He ran an 80-inch power mower. He harvested strawberries and dug potatoes. If you've ever done that, that's, that's hard work. And after his family moved to Florida, Michael went on to uh, Eckerd College in St. Petersburg and received his bachelor's degree. He received his Master of Divinity degree from Star King School of Ministry in Berkeley, California. And Michael has his PhD from Florida State University. Michael has served UU congregations in Sioux City, Iowa, and in Binghamton, New York. And while in Binghamton, Michael gained fame as a familiar figure from the local running community, and he proposed, and this is probably the first time a UU congregation ever has done this, sponsored an eight-kilometer road race through the town of Binghamton. He continued to enjoy success in his own running, and was named the Triple Cities Runner of the Year for his performance in a series of four races of varying distances. And during his years at Binghamton, Michael ran 10 marathons with a personal best time of two hours and 36 minutes. Now, I 
did two marathons. Never near that time. That was running a marathon in less than five minutes a mile. That is amazing, Michael. <laughs> in 1988, Michael was called to serve First Unitarian Society and was their senior minister for the next 30 years. Michael is going to be speaking on his most recent publication, Humanism in Command or in Crisis, and there are copies in our foyer that Michael will be happy to sign and autograph. But it is a privilege, it's an honor to welcome Michael to Prairie this morning, speaking on humanism in command or in crisis. Well, I wasn't exactly expecting that deep background, <laughs> reminding me of all of those onerous chores on our farm back in the 1950s and 60s. Well, like many of you, during the last COVID-19 pandemic, my wife Trina and I spent our evenings at home rather than enjoying restaurants, theater productions, and sporting events. So at one point, we fired up the DVD player, and we binge-watched 12 seasons of Bones, a TV series that ran from 2005 to 2017. I take it from the chuckles that some of you are familiar with that. Then you know that the show's main character is a forensic anthropologist by the name of Temperance Brennan, nicknamed Bones by her colleagues because she specializes in the human skeletal system. She is a quintessential humanist. She is the embodiment of reason who brings the same critical eye to both her professional pursuits and her personal affairs. Brennan would undoubtedly second Albert Schweitzer's comment that all real progress in the world is in the last analysis produced by rationalism. But in her dismissal of emotionality, sentimentality, metaphysical faith, and even the maternal instinct, she leads an intellectually stimulating but otherwise unfulfilled life. And as the series progresses, Brennan's friends slowly but surely help her to find herself, find herself as a feeling and not just as a thinking being. The series Bones presents Temperance Brennan as a serious and very successful researcher, but at times her statements on the program are extreme enough that she seems a parody of the humanistic scientist. Is she, however, any less believable than a real-life character like uh, Richard Dawkins? Folks like this believe humanism to have been a positive animating force in the rise of Western civilization. They insist that if there were a more general application of these humanist principles, we could all look forward to a brighter future. But you know what? A growing chorus of voices disagrees, and they point to the sprawling problems that now threaten to consume the planet. And these naysayers maintain 
that without significant modification, humanism may make a dystopian, if not an apocalyptic outcome more likely. Whose perspective is closer to the mark? So let's continue this discussion with a contemporary academic who has touted humanism as the indispensable philosophy for the 21st century and beyond. In his best-selling 2018 book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, in that book, Harvard professor Steven Pinker presents what is undoubtedly the most comprehensive the most affirming brief on behalf of humanism that I have seen in decades. Pinker's definition is admirably succinct, if perhaps just a bit too broad. Humanism, he explains, may be defined as a package of values calculated to maximize human flourishing. And to the question whether it has achieved that purpose, Pinker's answer is a resounding, unqualified, yes, it has. Now, Pinker begins his encomium with the 18th century European Enlightenment, to which he assigns credit for advancing four ideas that have shaped the modern world. And these include reason, science, progress, and humanism. Steven Pinker esteems the Enlightenment because, as he then proceeds to document at some length, it has demonstrably worked. Humankind has made progress on multiple fronts, despite protestations from the apostles of what he calls declinism. And so in a rare burst of mixed literary allusions, Pinker describes these declinists as, quote, hollow men eating their naked lunches in the wasteland while waiting for Godot. <laughs> you know your existentialism, then you know that, those allusions. Now for his part, Steven Pinker serves up reams of statistical evidence which show that the world has made spectacular progress in every single measure of human well-being. It is the greatest story seldom told. Pinker believes that too many of us have been negatively conditioned by news that overreports the world's problems and fails to highlight the many ways in which our lives as human beings have improved. None of us, he says, are as happy as we ought to be, given how amazing our world has become. Now, credit for all of this improvement belongs to society's growing commitment to reason, science, humanism, and its confidence that further progress lies ahead. Now, Steven Pinker concedes that people aren't always rational, that sometimes we do succumb to cognitive and emotional biases that cloud our judgment. But on the whole, he says, in one realm after another, we are seeing the conquest of dogma and instinct by the armies of reason. And in discussing science, the fruits of which have been immeasurable, Pinker laments that scientific inquiry has too often been set back. It's been hindered not only by stubborn religious superstition, but by intellectuals in the humanistic disciplines who have yet to recover from the disaster of postmodernism. 
Nevertheless, when all is said and done, reason and science have fully demonstrated their efficacy. If unexpected adverse developments occur, it is likely due to a variety of factors and forces that have eluded science and reason's authority. Now, Peeker's work is also unapologetically anthropocentric because it focuses almost exclusively on our human needs and interests. Humanism does not preclude the flourishing of animals, he allows, but our focus should always be on the welfare of moi, human beings. Reason, science, and unshakable belief in progress are key elements of the humanistic credo. But Pinker also presents humanism as a much needed moral alternative to theism. And so he describes the world's most religiously observant societies as hell holes. And he recommends as an antidote a realistic outlook governed by rational thought and focused on human fulfillment. All countries get smarter, he observes, when they turn away from God. Now this is a species of humanism that I call doctrinal because it seems to hold that its central claims are literally self-evident. Pinker's arguments basically repeat, however, what other humanists have been saying for well nigh a century, albeit he has more data to support his claims. Most notably, beginning in 1933, sympathizers began working together to create a series of humanist manifestos of which there have been at least four, the most recently having been drafted and circulated in 2003. How many of you are familiar with the humanist manifestos? Some of you are. Now, although each one of these documents differs somewhat, they consistently emphasize these five points. Number one, the evolutionary superiority of homo sapiens and the centrality of human needs and interests, a position that succinctly can be described as anthropocentrism, the centrality of human beings and their interests. Second, a naturalistic outlook that finds no empirical basis for the existence of supernatural agents of any kind or the revealed truths that they prefer. Three, the unique and unparalleled primacy of reason as a means for understanding the world and negotiating its terms. Four, the unrivaled capacity of science and technology to create and indefinitely maintain an advanced civilization. And five, the promise of unlimited material and social progress under the suzerainty of reason, science, and technology. These then are what I believe to be the central tenets of contemporary doctrinal humanism. So just how much influence has this school of thought had on our culture? Now, it is indeed still true that most Americans profess a belief in God, in heaven and hell, the veracity of scripture, the efficacy of prayer, and so forth. Public opinion surveys show that upwards of 70 and 80% of Americans believe in exactly these things. But in the conduct of their daily lives, many of these same people have casually substituted reason for faith, material pursuits for piety, 
reliance on their own resourcefulness for the providential hand of God, and the prospect of material rewards here on earth in favor of pie in the sky by and by. So clearly, we humans have mastered the art of holding two contrasting sets of ideas in our heads without being bothered too much about their inconsistency. It's called compartmentalized thinking. Now, admittedly, only a small minority of Americans would opt for this label, humanist, over the vague term spiritual, as in I am spiritual but not religious. Still, the philosopher John Gray maintains that in Immanuel Kant's time, the creed of conventional people was Christian. Now it's humanist. The best-selling historian Yuval Noah Harari agrees, saying, the typical American of today is simultaneously a nationalist, a free market capitalist, and a liberal humanist. Now, humanism's critics have responded with a variety of objections. Those of a religious predisposition are bothered by humanism's secular orientation, its absolute repudiation of metaphysics. Others take exception to what they feel is an overestimation of the powers of human reason, or a cramped perspective on human progress, or an excessive confidence in science and technology, or an anthropocentric orientation that prioritizes human needs and interests over those of other life forms. Those are some of the objections that stand out. Taken together, however, these skeptics largely agree that in its present form, humanism is simply not up to the challenges that our species now faces. So I've already mentioned this guy named John Gray. He's a philosopher, a cultural historian at the University of London. After the publication of Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, Gray dismissed this work as comic book history because it failed to honestly address many of the Enlightenment's contradictions. Gray also accuses Pinker of scientism because he presents science as a methodology capable of untangling all confusion and solving all problems. If we would only accept science's epistemological supremacy, then our ethical political problems would simply disappear. According to John Gray, there is simply no evidence to support this claim. It is a strange fallacy, he writes, to suppose that science can bring reason to an irrational world, whereas all it can really do is add another twist to the normal madness. Gray rues the fact that Homo sapiens' moral and ethical development has lagged far behind its scientific and material gains. Ethics and morals, these have been sidelined in the ceaseless pursuit of wealth and power. Human knowledge increases, he says. Human irrationality remains the same. All we have to do is look at the Middle East to get some glimmer of that reality. Now, in recent times, environmentalists and life scientists have proven to be some of the fiercest critics of humanism's core beliefs. And for purposes of these remarks, I'm going to focus on just one of these life scientists, Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of the 2013 book, Braiding Sweetgrass. (coughs) 
Robin Wall Kimmerer is a biologist. She's a distinguished professor at Buffalo University, and she is also an enrolled member of the Midwest's Potawatomi tribe. She is a person who recognizes the limitations of her own scientific training. Now, she is grateful that science, science has equipped her to see aspects of nature that remain largely hidden to the uninitiated, those who are not acquainted with science. But at the same time, she agrees with the native scholar Greg Cajete that of the four faculties by which all of us apprehend the world, through our mind, our body, our emotion, and our spirit, science privileges only the first of these and maybe, just maybe, the second. And to demonstrate this, she, she shares a story that was told to her by another native friend. It seems that a plant scientist had ventured into the South American rainforest hoping to discover new and potentially useful botanical resources. A young indigenous guide accompanies him and he eagerly points out certain plants that he thinks might arouse the scientist's interest. And the scientist is pleasantly surprised by the, bo by the boy's familiarity with the forest's many species, and even he knows how to use their formal scientific names when he points them out. So he compliments the young man's achievement. Yes, the young man replies with downcast eyes. I have learned the names of all the bushes, but I have yet to learn their songs. Kimmerer remarks that while scientific language aims for precision, it captures only a thin slice of reality and misses most of what indigenous cultures understand and cherish about the land that they inhabit. Native peoples, she writes, employ this language of animacy, animacy, which is also the language that toddlers of all races and all cultures use to describe their own encounters with nature until we teach them not to. Small children naturally regard plants and animals as people, as beings that have certain qualities that are not unlike our own. But then trained over time to regard a tree as an it rather than a thou, it becomes much easier to take up the chainsaw and reduce it to just one more exploitable resource. Animacy is a quality aspiring scientists are trained to ignore, if not to laugh at. Getting these professionals to consider the validity of indigenous knowledge is like swimming upstream in cold, cold water, Kimmerer laments. And when she says this, she could speak, be speaking directly to the noted humanist scientist, the late E.O. Wilson. Prior to the advent of modern science, was there any knowledge worth hanging on to, worth preserving, E.O. Wilson asks us. And then answering his own question, he insists that pre-scientific indigenous cultures were wrong, always wrong. Without exception, they demonstrated a talent only for inventing ingenious speculations and myths. Now, Kimmerer herself never seriously doubts the value of her own scientific training. But she draws a crucial distinction 
between the actual practice of science and the scientific worldview that modern humanists like E.O. Wilson subscribe to. Real science, she insists, brings the questioner into an unparalleled intimacy with nature that is fraught with wonder as we try to comprehend the mysteries of that more than human world outside of ourselves. But when science is commandeered and placed in the service of an all-knowing worldview, then it ends up being used to reinforce a reductionistic, materialistic, economic, and political agenda. Ultimately, she says, it separates knowledge from responsibility. And she notes that in today's engineered industrial world, held in thrall by the scientific worldview, nature becomes a Cartesian machine with human beings as the drivers. And this strikes indigenous people as arrogant. Among her own people, Kimmerer explains, humans are seen as the younger brothers and sisters of creation who are obliged to learn from their elders in this greater community of sovereign beings. But it takes humility to submit to the lessons that other sentient beings have to offer. And that humility is not a virtue one often finds among those who have thrown in their lot with the scientific worldview and doctrinal humanism. So this brief survey wouldn't be complete without a foray into the field of dystopian literature, a genre in which anti-humanist sentiments are often expressed. Almost without exception, these narratives describe a future world devastated by the unforeseen consequences of advanced technology. There are many candidates here to choose from, and they are all highlighted in my book. C.S. Lewis, Margaret Atwood, Ray Bradbury, Cormac McCarthy. But I'm choosing here to highlight Ursula K. Le Guin. In her novel, Always Coming Home, Le Guin envisions a post-apocalyptic civilization that is much, much different from our own. And her story is set in her own native California, probably in a place like Napa or Sonoma Valley. But it's at a time so far in the future that people don't even recall how the great transformation took place or who was responsible for it. So we find ourselves in this Valley of the Keshe where the inhabitants tell stories about a, about a scary people who long, long ago had their heads on backwards. These dimly recalled terrifying figures were in reality the Keshe's ancient ancestors, the people who were responsible for causing the near destruction of the planet. According to the Keshe mythology, those people who had done these things wrong had done them mindfully, rationally, they had their heads on wrong. Now lengthy sections of Leguin's novel describe the songs, the rituals, the holidays, the myths, the social customs, the architectural and transportational structures of the Keshe culture. And taken together, these ethnographic details add up to this intimate portrait of a society that reinvents itself following a global cataclysm. 
And she tries to imagine how humans might emerge from the ashes and create something much better, a comfortable, creative, spiritually nurturing, egalitarian culture in harmony with the natural environment. The Kesh, they are a people who have created a sustainable culture by going backward, opting for a society rich in traditional values and low-tech solutions rather than one that prizes novelty and unrestrained technological innovation. Legain has stated elsewhere that Western civilization places too much faith in reason, elevating reason to a godhead. The utopias conjured up by this Euclidean reason have now acquired this self-destructive capacity that she says demands a, sub a subversive response, which is what always coming home is designed to be, a subversive response. So what's the upshot? Well, my own feeling is that there are aspects of humanism that we would do well to retain. While it is one thing to criticize the scientific worldview, it is quite another to downplay science's indisputable role in healthcare, renewable energy. And one reason that the COVID-19 pandemic took on the proportions that it did is because too many people did not take the science seriously enough. Or even worse, they were encouraged to dismiss the warnings and the advice of medical experts and researchers as some kind of a plot down in the deep state, a conspiracy. So science has its place in our lives, indisputably so. Progress, on the other hand, has become a vexed concept. And the singular focus on technological advance and on a standard of living measured almost exclusively in material terms, that has not worn very well. The internal combustion engine, digitalized multiverse, toxic industrial agriculture, burgeoning arsenals of destructive weapons, all of these are wreaking havoc on the environment and on our own well-being as physical and psychological entities. Now fortunately, there are at least a few self-identifying humanists who have, in recent years, raised serious doubts about the position that their doctrinal counterparts have staked out. And one of the most prominent is a fellow by the name Anthony Pinn. He's an African-American professor of humanities at Rice University in Houston, and he is an active Unitarian Universalist. And Dr. Pinn's project is to replace a humanism found on the Eurocentric environment and enlightenment values with a more universal philosophy, a more universal humanism that takes into consideration the needs and the experience of the world's marginalized peoples. In fact, Pinn's brand of humanism can truthfully be said to constitute an anti-humanism in that it explicitly rejects much of the foundation on which doctrinal humanism has come to rest. Now, Anthony Pinn and Steven Pinker's humanisms do agree on at least one thing, the irrelevancy, actually the unreality of any supernatural entity that meddles in human affairs. But unlike Pinker, Pinn reserves a place for religion 
in his non-theistic humanism. Religious language, religious celebration, theological speculation, these can and must play a role in people's lives. Because, he says, whether one is theistic or non-theistic in one's thinking and practices, there is this basic human need to render life meaningful. And theists do this through a turn to divine beings who control the world. And non-theists do this, create a sense of meaning, by strictly relying on the capabilities of the human animal. But both of them are about the same task, constructing meaning in our lives. Like its doctrinal counterpart, Pin's humanism also draws on the discoveries and the insights of science, and particularly the concept of symmetry. Symmetry occupies a prominent place in his thinking. He says that symmetry is the one idea by which man throughout the ages has tried to comprehend and to create order, beauty, and perfection. But then on the other hand, Pin warns against vesting science with more authority than is truly warranted. Because science is never free from the taint of socio-cultural commitments. Lacking an element of self-critical awareness, science morphs into scientism, a belief in its own right. And then finally, Pin's critique of the narrative of progress, so dear to many doctrinal humanists, is telling. He advocates for a measured realism in place of the one-directional linear version of history that was produced and that emerged from the Enlightenment. Progress, he says, is by no means inevitable. It's just as likely that societal transformations will produce misery rather than uplift. So he says, this is a very different humanism. One made more worldly or world-worn based on the ways in which advances in human knowledge and capacity have also worked against the flourishing of life. And Pin has also repudiated the immoderate anthropocentrism that has also been an important talking point for doctrinal humanists. While non-theistic humanism is grounded in the raw stuff of human struggle, we, its adherents, need to recognize that ours is just one of a myriad of species inhabiting the planet. And then, so speaking in his Unitarian voice, he says, we must act in ways that recognize the interconnected web of existence as opposed to any simple assertion of humanity that ignores this interconnectedness. So at the end of the day, I would submit that the question, the question really isn't are you or are you not a humanist? But rather, which humanism is for you the best fit? Blessed be and amen. Thank you. I think that Reverend Ralph now is going to moderate any questions or comments that you have. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, let me, let me respond just briefly. Uh, first of all, I, I don't think that I um, claimed in the discourse that all atheists are the same. Anthony Pinn is an atheist. 
Barbara Ehrenreich is an atheist. I was raised by, Ralph didn't mention this, by atheist existentialists. I grew up listening to Waiting for Godot on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Um, so I understand the difference between, you know, different schools of atheism. Steven Pinker was lifted up as the most prominent voice in contemporary humanism, and he no doubt is an atheist. But if you were actually to read my book, you would understand that, you know, in 25 minutes I can't do justice to a 275-page book. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, your point is well taken in the sense we, we do tend to lump people into these categories, you know, these kind of binaries between theists and non-theists. And just as I understand very clearly that they're all different kinds of theists, from raging evangelical fundamentalists to members of the United Church of Christ and the Society of Friends. So the same thing is obviously true uh, of atheists as well. And I, you know, that, that kind of goes without saying as far as I'm concerned. But the main fo fo focus here is the five points that I, point, that I draw out in doctrinal humanism are problematic at best and perhaps uh, have become dysfunctional at worst, and we need some significant modification, which is what Anthony Pinn, as a true blue Unitarian and a humanist, recommends to us. Um, so, I mean, I, I hope that that reassures you a little bit, but, you know, certainly as someone who grew up with, in the same kind of culture that you did, the last thing I would want to do is necessarily disparage atheists as a group. Uh, the other thing I would want to just kind of say is, is that this particular book is a book that I wrote um, that is, is kind of a, a rethinking of my doctoral dissertation from 1982, Religious Humanism in 21st Century American Thought. So I've been studying this now for a long, long time. <laughs> and so, you know, to, to me, this has been something that has been gestating for a long time and 40 plus years of Unitarian ministry, becoming, you know, acquainted with and in conversation with myriads of humanists over the years, many of whom I have nothing but the profoundest respect for. I just want to follow up on what Bonnet, she, she believes in reason, but not necessarily in rationalism. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Jonathan Haidt's work? Okay, well, Jonathan Haidt basically makes the point at some length that uh, we are governed largely by our emotions, that emotions are the elephant that, you know, basically drive our behavior, and that reason and rationalism are there to provide post facto justifications about what our emotions have already determined for us. Yeah, which is exactly what Anthony Pins, what he calls non-theistic humanism. I mean, he, maybe he avoids the term atheist, as you say. It means the same thing. If you're going to take the prefix A, it's not a theist. He doesn't use that because maybe non-theistic humanism was more palatable to those people who don't think of themselves as atheists. Yeah, and for anybody who's kind of really interested in that particular slant of science, Franz de Waal's books, particular uh, good-natured is a wonderful book about all of the human qualities that a variety of different animals have and the animal qualities that we as human beings have. So Franz Duwall, Good-Natured, is a good book in that regard. Thank you again, Michael, for stimulating our thought and giving us that message.